0: Hey, page one twenty-three. That's right. It's such a long title. I had to pre-write the baby out. That's right. For those of you who aren't hooked on acronyms, I've been doing kind of cheating the last couple of times. But anyway, the evidence is for the Christian faith. That's right. What do you mean to tell me that Christianity is not just a blind leap in the dark? You might hear that one? Oh, yeah. Uh, you mean to tell me that when you become a Christian, you aren't just checking in your brain at the door? You heard that one? Okay, no, absolutely not. Christianity, again, to me, is the only belief system of not only adequately explaining the origins of life, the meaning of life, uh, where did evil come from, all that stuff, but folks, it is easily to be defended. The problem, we've been seeing, is we're not adequately equipped. Once again, let's go back to the theme text, 1 Peter chapter three. Remind ourselves, why is this kind of study important? Okay, uh, let's take a look. 1 Peter, if you will, open your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter three. You find Second Peter, what do you do? Hey, that's right. Take a look, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Okay, let's just take a look at what it is, uh, why it is. Now, again, because and as you're turning there, again, uh, to, to uh, make the point and reiterate, again, to emphasize, uh, how many different ways can I put that, uh, is what we need to do is we need to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. Again, you're going to see the key word here is always, and, and at least what I've noticed in ministry over 20 years now, Uh, is that sometimes you'll have new Christians or older Christians or whatever been saved for a while and they kind of downplay this need to be able to answer skeptical questions. And then then they'll relegate it to, well, that's Brother Bob. You know, he's kind of into that study. That's what he likes. That's his passion. But me, hey, I'll just stick to... What? Read the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. And again, this is what our text says. But in your hearts, Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord and how often should you be prepared... Always. Now, what does that imply again? All the time to be prepared. How are you going to get to that point? You got to study. And you got to specifically study these skeptical questions. That's what he's saying. This is not an option. This is not something to launch a committee over. It's not something to ponder over a cup of coffee. Okay? It's, you need to do it. It is a command. Always, he says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Of course, do it with gentleness and respect. Don't beat them over the head with the family Bible if they don't get it right away. Okay, be patient, okay? Uh, I know it's a technique, but it's not too well. Uh, But anyways, we saw that's the whole thing. We don't check in our brain at the door. Uh, We can give a logical defense for the hope that lies within us and we're supposed to, it's a command. And that's what we saw so far is with this opening story is a little disturbing to me, uh, is it kind of gives the inclination that is, is this really how Christianity is supposed to be? Is this really how our walk is supposed to be? That we go in with an absolute, utter, defeated, fearful encounter if somebody dare ask us about God. No, to me, the whole story, if, if, if anything, told me that this guy isn't doing what Peter said to do. You need to be equipped because we need to flip it around and get to the point where when somebody asks us a question, I don't care what the question is. Yeah, let's go, let's talk. I'm glad you asked, thank you. Thank you for asking, been waiting for you. Okay, instead of just like, as he ends the story there, I just got out there and just hope I... Nobody remembers me anymore, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's continue on. And then we saw, okay, let's break it down. Let's start getting equipped. And the first thing that we saw there is on page 124 are the scriptures reliable? Yes, they are. We began to look at some logic. Okay, uh, and what we saw is that, uh, the Bible's been written over a period of 1,400 years, 60 different generations, 40 plus authors, different backgrounds of life, over three continents and three different languages, and hundreds of controversial subjects. And what we saw, the amazing thing is, you would expect then that you'd find some errors, you'd find some uh, 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 contradictions or something in there that just doesn't agree, but what do we find? That's where we left off with our uh, last blank, and that is, we find complete uniformity. It's uniform absolutely amazing and now this is is where we left off the only answer to such overwhelming facts is that a sovereign god was superintending its writing and this is what ff bruce says he says the bible at first sight appears to be a collection of literature mainly jewish he said if we inquire into the circumstances under which the various biblical documents were written we find that they were written at intervals over a space of 1400 years The writers wrote in various lands from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east and the writers themselves were a heterogeneous number. Heteros meaning uh, different. Okay, like where we get heterosexual. Okay, uh, Hamas means same. That's where you get the word Homosexual, the same, okay. And he's talking about different writers. It's a big giant word there, I broke it down for you. Heterogeneous number of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belong to the most diverse walks of life. And he says, for all that, the Bible is not simply an anthology. There is unity which binds the whole together. An anthology is compiled by an anthologist, but no anthologist compiled the Bible unless, of course, I would say you want to put a capital A there. God okay it's not one person god used many different authors different backgrounds different times didn't even know each other and yet there's complete uniformity man can never whip that up so again when somebody comes up to you and say hey how do you know the bible came from god just even just even this section right here if you you guys can't see it i'm not going to drop my notes Uh, page 124 in the middle just sharing that don't you think that would drop a new thought in their brain don't you think that's just one little piece of taking the time to be prepared Uh, for that now let's take a look all right well maybe the bible did come from god okay it's pretty amazing okay but how do we know how many guys heard this one all right how do we even know that all these all over all these years with all these different copies that we have what was accurate to the original right and frankly that's a good question and frankly if you do your homework there's an answer let's get equipped he says the bible is the foundation of the christian faith isn't that awesome Amen. Isn't that neat? It's great. That, you know, usually in our doctrinal statements, we'll say the Bible is a sola scriptura. It is our final rule for faith and practice. What's the problem though? We don't put it into practice. But, anyway, but it looks nice on the doctrinal statement. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but he says that's the basis for our Christian faith. If the Bible is not accurate in what it presents, then hello, that puts the whole of our faith in question. Again, as we talked before, that's why it's important to also learn another apologetic study called Creation. Why? Because if I can't trust the first page, let alone the first verse of the first page of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Then why should I trust anything else? And that's exactly what he's saying here. Puts the whole faith, uh, our Christian faith in question. He says, all right, then let's take a look at the evidence for the reliability of the Bible. And he brings up a book from Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter, who in that book cites this military historian, C. Sanders, not to be confused with that other Sanders guy, you know who I'm talking about. This guy's cool. Uh, Anyway, he lists three tests, okay, uh, that's applied to any piece, not just the Bible, but pure logic, you want to know if some historical document is accurate, and the Bible's not just a history document, but if you want to know if a document is accurate, here's three tests. That's the bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test, and that's going to be, hopefully we can get that far in our study tonight, is what we're going to cover. Let's take a look at the first one, the bibliographical test. Now, as he says there, this examines the textual transmission by which the document reached us, okay? So how, how do we get this? Because we don't have the original. But how, so how do we know after all these years of copying, it's accurate to the original? That's the issue, okay? The most important factors in this uh, examination are the number, the number of manuscripts at the time uh, between the original autographs, the original documents, and the first copies that we have in our possession. So when you take a look at the New Testament, get ready for your blank. We have over 20,000. Actually, in my research, I see 24,000 plus. Okay, but you got over 20,000 full or partial copies of the New Testament. Now, contrast this with Homer's, not to be construed uh, with the other guy. You know, yeah. Okay, Homer's classic, the Iliad, in which there uh, exist only 643 manuscripts, and guess what? Nobody ever questions that accuracy, do they? But how many copies do we have of the Bible, of the New Testament? Portions of it, full copies? Over 20,000, 24 plus excuse me, and you scoff at that? That's crazy, okay? Uh, Let's continue on. As far as the closeness between the time of the originals were penned, uh, and to when we have our existing copies, uh, manuscripts were copied, the New Testament's got some serious, uh, obvious, great evidence. By the 20th century, archaeological discoveries had confirmed that the accuracy of the papyri manuscripts, the John Ryland manuscript, which is AD 130, the Chester Beatty papyri at AD 155, and the Bodmer papyri, number two, not confused with number one, uh, A.D. 200 bridged the gap between the time of Christ and the existing manuscripts from a later day. (sighs) That's a lot. Let's explain it now. Uh, In other words, uh, the time between the writing of the last book of the New Testament, A.D. 95, that's the book of Revelation, some would say 96, okay, Uh, and the first manuscript fragments is only 35 to 95 years in between, the actual time of writing. Okay, Uh, And this was this Harold Greenlee guy. He says this. He says, in the case of the New Testament, however, two of the most important manuscripts were written written within 300 years after the New Testament books were completed. And some virtually complete New Testament books as well as extensive fragmentary manuscripts of many parts of the New Testament date back to one century from the time of writing. But I wanted to cover a little bit deeper. It's actually with further research, you're gonna find uh, it's even more impressive than that. Okay, Uh, again, he brought the example of the writings of, uh, everybody wants to doubt the Bible, okay? But he brought the example of Homer. We've got 643 copies known in existence. They are 500 years removed from the original time of the writing. And we only have 643, nobody questions that. Herodotus, okay? He's actually what's considered the father of history, of just that art of history, noting things down. We have uh, eight copies of Herodotus on the planet and they're 1,300 years removed from the original. And people say, hey, he's the father of history. You dare you, what? Uh, you got another guy, Euripides. Uh, we have nine copies on the planet. They're 1,500 years removed from the original. Let's get to the big ones, the, the classic ones that are taught in secular college today. Uh, in philosophy, Aristotle. We have 49 copies of Aristotle's writing on the planet, known in existence. They're 1,400 years removed from the original. Nobody questions that. Plato, once again, my son's favorite philosopher, uh, they have seven copies on the planet. Seven, that's it, seven! And they're 1,200 years removed from the original. Nobody ever questions that. And yet, okay, we have portions of the New Testament, listen, within 25 years of the original, tens of thousands of copies, and yet people scoff at the accuracy of the Bible, even the New Testament. Makes no sense. In fact, it gets even closer than that. Now, if you guys remember, I brought this back up from our study we did because I know you got the whole study memorized all six weeks So that study, did the Bible really come from God? Pastors can dream, they can dream, right? Okay, anyway, uh, listen to this. Uh, in cave seven, now this is the same place where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? And one of the caves there, uh, they found some New Testament fragments, okay? But they were basically stuck on a shelf for a long time because everything they were finding was written in Hebrew and these were in, in Greek, okay? So they, did, they just left them there. Well, they finally got discovered, wait a second. This is New Testament writing, okay? In the, in the Qumran caves. Now, there were 19 small fragments. Uh, uh, 17 of the 19 went unread because of this issue. Uh, there were New Testament, and they were thinking everything in here has got to be Old Testament. Okay, now, when they got to looking at them, one of the most obvious uh, pieces was from the book of Mark, uh, and it, they caught a, a phrase there, Genesaret, Okay, and that's a phrase uh, that's used of the Sea of Galilee uh, that was used only in the first century and is typical of in the Gospel of Mark. And so they, got, they found a fragment of Mark 6, verses 52 through 53, and that's just one of them. Then they continued to analyze not just that, they found uh, other passages of Mark, of the book of Acts, First uh, Timothy, Second Peter, and James all verified this is where they came from. Okay, now listen. Uh, The significance is that the dating of these manuscripts of the New Testament books were uh, before 68 AD. Okay, which is before 70 AD when the Romans went in there and destroyed the area and the Jewish temple and all that stuff. So this is uh, before 68 AD. Now, let me do the math for you of where this puts these manuscripts, okay? If you take the 68 AD, it could've been before earlier, but if you take the 68 AD date, listen, that means that we now have portions of the gospel of Mark within 13 years of the actual time of writing. Gets even better. That means we also have portions of the book of Romans within 11 years, portion of the book of James within eight years, the book of Acts within five years, first Timothy within five years, and second Peter, the exact same year, it was estimated to be written. Isn't that wild? And yet people want to scoff at the Bible. They'll take Homer, including that Simpson guy and his word. Okay, Aristotle, Plato, don't even question them. That never comes up, does it? And we have portions of the Bible the same year. The same year, 24,000 plus copies. Absolutely Mind-blowing! That one researcher said this. He says no book from the ancient world comes to us with more abundant evidence for its integrity than does the New Testament. The authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Can I translate that for you? In other words, it's done. Anybody who says you cannot trust the New Testament is parodying, uh, is either just being ignorant or they're parodying what the media has told them to say. They're not being honest. Nobody, dare I say even a Christian, has lovingly, respectfully said, excuse me, but can I share something with you? I'm a Christian who takes Peter very seriously when he says to always be prepared to give a defense. And I have some information that you might want to know about. Did you know blah, 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 blah? Right? And, and if we got equipped to this point, couldn't, wouldn't that just be awesome when somebody asks you a question like that instead of going, it turns everything around to like, I've been waiting for you, man. I've been praying all day. You'd ask something about the Bible, anything, right? And it makes it a joy to witness. I really think that a lot of times we don't like to witness is because we're not equipped to witness. We can't give a defense because we live in a skeptical world, Okay. But let's continue on. Uh, That's what he's talking about there with the New Testament. Flip over there. We're cruising now, 126. That's right. The reliability of the Old Testament is just as amazing, if not more amazing, considering the longer time it's been in existence, much more than the New Testament, okay? Now, one example of accuracy of how amazingly accurate it is, okay, is in the names of the kings, uh, foreign as well as Jewish, in the Old Testament. Now, listen to this. The odds are so big, I can't even calculate the number. Listen to this. Of the 144 cases of transliteration from Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Moabite into Hebrew, and the 40 cases of the opposite, back and forth, a total of 184, the evidence shows that for 2,300 to 3,900 years, almost 4,000 years, the uh, the text of the proper names in the Hebrew Bible has been transmitted with the most minute accuracy. Do you get that? Not 40 years, not 400 years but for almost 4,000 years, completely accurate in the transmission of the data. Uh, uh, can I say something? That's before computers. Okay, it's absolutely mind-blowing. We'll get to the reason why, I think, in a second. The original, uh, that the original scribes should have written them with such close conformity to the correct philological principles is a wonderful proof uh, of them uh, of that through their care and scholarship that the Hebrew text should have been transmitted by copyists through so many centuries is a phenomenon unequaled in the history of literature. In other words, how in the world they pull it off? Well, you need to understand something about their copy methods. They didn't have a computer to where you and I can do cut and paste, cut and paste. Anybody love that function? Isn't that awesome? Right now? And then if you really get nifty and you always be prepared to use your computer, uh, you can learn the shortcuts. Control C, control V. Hey, that's worth the whole study tonight, isn't it? Hey, let's continue on. But listen to what the Jewish people did in their copying methods. We talked about this before. Uh, It wasn't just something willy-nilly. Hey, Bob, you want a copy? I'm bored today. I got to go golfing. No, this was serious stuff. Okay, first of all, uh, a synagogue roll must be written only by a Jewish person and on the skin of clean animals. The scrolls must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of lines and columns equal throughout the entire codex. It was a mathematical formula. They knew exactly how many had to go. Well, Hebrew this way. Uh, they, how many they had to go and how many lines, how many, it was a mathematical formula. And if they added it up and it didn't work, bye. Oh, and part of the thing that they also did is if they did if they did find a mistake anywhere, any kind, it could have even just been one little letter off, whatever. Their practice was they didn't just bury it. They burned it, the ashes, and then even buried the ashes. Because they didn't want any false copy anywhere. That's how accurate These guys were. The ink should be black, neither red nor green nor any other color prepared to a definite recipe. No word or letter, not even a yo that's a hash mark can be written from memory. You must look at the codex before you and the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body uh, and not write the name of God without a pen newly dipped in ink, even if it was five uh, words later, had to do it again. Uh, and even if a king should address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him, which back in the culture, I believe, was punishment by death. These guys were serious. So, how could they get this accurate over nearly 4,000 years of transmission? Because they were serious about it. And it literally was a mathematical formula. Okay? And if it didn't add up, chuck it, it has to add up perfectly. Okay, let's continue on. It gets even better than that. Now, he's talking about here, the foreign kings, and the list and, and all the different nations and whatever there and how accurate are. Here's the odds. There's about 40 of these kings living from 2000 BC to 400 BC and each appears in chronological order. Okay, now listen to this, with reference to the kings of the same country in respect with the kings of the other countries. Okay, now, no stronger evidence for the substantial accuracy the Old Testament records could possibly imagine than this collection of the kings. How do you get this accurately right after all these years in perfect chronological order? Of the kings. Of, and, and there's other records that, you know, because the Egyptian record could, you know. How did you do that? Well, he says the odds of this, listen to this, mathematically is one chance in 750, one, two, three, four, five, six, 7 sets of triple zeros. I don't even know how big of a number that is. That's huge. Yeah, Godzillion. Really, that's awesome. I like that. You get a golf clap for that one tonight. That's right, Bonnie. Uh, And that this is accuracy. There's no way that's by chance. Give me a break. Absolutely mind-blowing, okay? Now, that's just that. In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd found in a cave along with the Dead Sea, we now have become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Uh, We know that. And among the manuscripts was a copy of the book of Isaiah and the manuscript dated about 100 BC. Now this reduced the date of what we previously had about 900 AD, the earliest copy. And so that redoing the math. Okay, that reduced the the gap by a thousand years. And I remember when that first thing, and when they came out in the reports, reading about the reports, when it first came out, all the skeptics, they jumped on this. They couldn't wait to get in there at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And "Ah, we got you Christians now because we know there's no logical way of we can have accuracy of the Old Testament. We got something now that's a thousand years uh, removed from the original uh, or from the original that we, or the copy that we had that we've been copying for all these years. A thousand years earlier, there's got to be mistakes. Was there? Well, let's continue on. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, after examination of the Isaiah text, the accuracy of transmission from this text and those in existence from 900 AD is next to, what's the word there? Miraculous. This is amazing. Uh, Of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there's only 17 letters in question. Letters, mind you. Okay. 10 of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense. I'll get to that in a little bit. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunction, how many of you guys remember that song? What's your, how do, you, how do you guys know that and you don't know the Brady Bunch? Okay, let's continue on. Anyway, that's right, you blew my mind. Uh, let's continue. <laughs> Isn't that Schoolhouse Rock? You guys remember that? That's awesome, right? I'm just a bill and I'm sitting here on Capitol. Yeah, I like that one for <laughs> personal reasons. Um, anyway, that's right, uh, let's move on. I digress. Uh, four or more of the letters have minor stylistic changes uh, such as conjunctions. Uh, even if we don't know the function the remaining three letters comprise the word light which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning greatly furthermore this word is supported by the Septuagint the the Qumran scrolls there thus in one chapter of uh, 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 166 words there's only one word three letters by the way in question after a thousand years of transmission and this word does not even significantly change the meaning of the passage it's amazing and that's why this guy, Gleason Archer, uh, states that the Isaiah copies of the Qumran community proved to be word for word identical with the standard Hebrew Bible is more, in more than 95%, that's your next point there, in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. Okay, let me give you uh, some examples of that. Some of the differences in spelling. So, oh, that's, that's gonna change everything. No, it's not. Okay, uh, a lot of the spelling was basically uh, minor things. There was like a, a, a dialect change, but it doesn't change the meaning of the word. Okay, so how many guys, let me give you a couple examples. Okay, you go to watch a movie at the theater. Now, did you know there's some people that will actually say, we go to the movie at the theater. It's theater, but it's said you know, and there you have it. I, that's, told, that's a complete, totally different meaning. I just, I can't trust it. That's what he's talking about here, folks. And uh, what they found in the quote cool differences. Okay. Uh, going, here's another common common one. Uh, we'll have, hey, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Savior. And then some people actually write, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Right? Oh, it's so different, Mickey. I, I don't even know what to do. I mean, this totally ch- changed the meaning of who Jesus is. it? are you kidding me? I'll give you one more. This one's really obvious. Now, some people call it chicken. Other people rightly call it evil, because that's what it is, okay? It's synonymous, so that's not a big deal, but I digress. Uh, but anyway, so that's really what they're dealing with is minor issues. You know you like that one. Uh, but anyway, that's right. <laughs> uh, they're minor issues, okay? When they say, oh, there's differences," Give me a break. That's what they're talking about, okay? So even the skeptic is trying to explain make it bigger than what it really is. And uh, another thing, since the writing of the, uh, and the findings of the, uh, the caves there in the Qumran community, we now know that we have portions of the uh, Old Testament within 25 years of the actual writing. No other book. in his- You don't question Aristotle, 1400 years removed. You only got a handful on the planet. Plato, 1200, and a handful. But you question the Bible? It's ludicrous. Now, again, you get always prepared. You have that information in your back pocket, in your brain, because you've been taken serious what Peter says. And somebody asks you the question about the Bible, you just, what, you're salivating. You gotta get that drip cup so you don't freak people out. Right? Whoa! Do you see how it changes everything? If you take the time to study, to show yourself approved, to always get prepared and be equipped to share the hope that lies within us. It's exciting. It's not, um, does anybody, this kind of information build your faith? You didn't doubt the Bible, but isn't it great information to like go, whoa. How much more does the non-Christian need to hear this? Right? And can I tell you something? Are they gonna get this information on the History Channel? How about the secular school system? How about the, you know, the three sewer lines, ABC, NBC, and CBS? Oh, no, okay. Uh, Well, gee, where's the only place they're gonna get it from? Us. And if we don't get equipped, how are they ever going to know? And how is this parodying of the media ever going to stop? Unless we take the time to give a defense. Let's continue on. Uh, That was the Old Testament uh, proof. And uh, that's what he says. He says, the proof that our Old Testament text is reliable is also overwhelming. Now, let's go to the internal evidence test. Aristotle stated that the benefit of the doubt is always given to the what? The skeptic. Because we all know that uh, in order to prove uh, something is uh, guilty until proven innocent. Well, that's the way they treat Christianity. You're absolutely right, Tom. Complete hypocrisy. We even know in our court system today, hopefully, uh, that you're innocent until proven guilty, right? Well, the same logic, and that's what Aristotle is saying. Hey, listen, if you're going to intellectually be honest when you're validating a document, and even in court cases, validating somebody's crime, they have to be innocent first before you prove them guilty. And so you have to approach the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself. You have to give the benefit to the document that, listen, maybe even though it might sound wild to you that it came from God, you have to at least start there, okay? And you got to keep on going in that fashion, okay? And so let's take a look at what does the Bible say about itself? Well, what we see is the Bible says, the Lord hath spoken 30 times. It is written 80 times. The word of the Lord, 258 times. Thus saith the Lord, 415 times. Saith the Lord, 854 times. And that's not everything. So the Bible, if you're going to take it at face value and be intellectually honest, okay, admits and says, guess what? It came from God. Isn't that an honest place to start? You may not like it. You may not agree. But instead of saying it's wrong and you have to prove to me that it's right, that's completely backwards logic. It's illogical. Okay, let's continue on. Okay, and, and that's the irony. Who made that statement? Aristotle, you know, uh, the, you know, one of the ones that we rely on and teach each other logic and ethics, we don't logically even listen to what he says when it comes to the Bible. Okay, let's continue on. He says, Therefore, one must listen to the claims of the document under analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualified himself by contradictions and known factual inerrancies. And the Bible doesn't have that. Okay, as we've been seeing, and we're going to see it a little bit shortly. Uh, keeping this in mind, as we examine the text of Scripture, we find that it is in every area. How much area? every area historically reliable. Now why is that important? Because if it's got errors in it, logically as he said, it's innocent until proven guilty but if you start seeing historical errors in it and inconsistencies and contradictions, then, hey, maybe it didn't come from God. Why? Because logically, if a book came from God, who is holy by definition, and supreme by definition, and omniscient and knows all things by definition, and he's got some stuff that's wrong in here, then it can't be from God, even if there is a God. You follow the train? Okay, so it's important to be able to demonstrate the historical accuracy of the scripture, and that's easily done. Let's take a look at that. A matter of extreme importance in accessing the historical accuracy of a document is the closeness in time of the writers to the accounts they're recording. Okay, and again, that's what we saw is we actually have portions now of the New Testament within the actual year and portions of the New, uh, Old Testament within 25 years. Okay? okay, but let's continue on. Now, the New Testament accounts of the life of Christ were written down by eyewitnesses, okay? Eyewitnesses, it's your next blank there, or by those who received what they wrote uh, from eyewitnesses. Let's take a look at a couple of those passages. The first one is Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, verses one through three. Great passage there. And uh, this, uh, this is a really, really good point that he makes here uh, in this issue. Uh, Luke chapter one and uh, verses one through three. Here's what he says. He says, now many have undertaken to draw up account of the things that we have, that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first, uh, from uh, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I I myself have care what's the word carefully investigated, okay everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the what certainty of the things. You have been taught. And again, we're gonna, if we get that far to the quote, what you're gonna see is even secular historians admit that Luke as a historian, top notch. He did exactly what, he, he carefully investigated these facts from the beginning and he wrote them down for us. And we'll get to the reason why that's a good thing in just a second. Uh, let's take a look at the next one. One more, 2 Peter chapter one. Flip over there. 2 Peter chapter one. Uh, verse 16, here's what Peter says. Second Peter chapter one. Verse 16, and he says this. And, and listen, I mean, it's like the skeptic. This is what they, they assume. Well, don't you know these guys just made up some story just to keep this Jesus thing going so they could build a, a new religion on the planet to rip people off their cash? Anybody ever hear that one? That was in secular philosophy. I heard that first from the teacher. That was his, that was his theory, okay? But listen to what Peter said. He says this, verse 16. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. When we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. Uh-uh. But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't whoop this baby up. This is direct first-hand account. And it's carefully been investigated. Carefully documented. So you may know, Christian, with certainty, this is actually what happened. No doubt. It's historically accurate. These are the actual events. That's, that's the way it is. Why are you doubting Let's continue on. Here's why. Now, here's what uh, F.F. Bruce again says. He says, now, it was not only friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. Listen, there were others less well disposed who were also conversant with the main facts of the ministry and death of Jesus. In other words, there were secular people that were also there during these events watching the events, right? Now, listen, here's the amazing point. The disciples obviously could not afford to risk inaccuracies, Okay, not only speak of willful manipulation of the facts, in other words, lie. Okay, which would at once be exposed by those who would only be glad to do so. In other words, don't you think some of the Jewish people, and we see that in the text, were a little bit upset that they appeared on the scene and said, hey, Jesus ain't dead, he's alive." They thought they finally squelled this opposition. And here it comes, it's growing even more. Now, if they lied about stuff, and if they recorded stuff that was historically inaccurate or embellished on it, don't you think immediately those guys went to taking them to task? But the accurate, it was accurate. It was historical. They had nothing to say because There is no inaccuracies, that's what he's saying. On the contrary, one of the strong points of the original apostolic preaching is that confident appeal to the knowledge of the uh, hearers. They not only said we are witnesses of these things, but also as you yourselves know. We're not making this up, check out the facts. You're still alive, you were there, you could discount us, you know what happened, right? And that's what they're saying there, okay? Acts chapter two. Uh, had there been any tendency to depart from the facts of uh, any material respect, uh, the possible presence of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as further corrective. They would have got them. They would have nailed them to the carpet. Okay. How many of you guys hate when that happens? You get nailed to the carpet. It ruins the carpet. You can't get up. Your back hurt. No, whatever. Let's continue on. Uh, by the external evidence. We'll take it one more to go. Uh, we mean the sources uh, by which are apart from the literature under analysis and give supporting evidence to its accuracy, reliability, and authenticity. Uh, historically speaking, two of the Apostle John's friends, Papias and Polycarp, he really liked fish, Tom, many fish, uh, uh, confirmed that John's accounts are true. But probably the greatest confirmation of the accuracy of scriptures is the discovery by guess who? archaeologist. McDowell writes this, Sir William Ramsey is regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists who ever lived. He was a student student of the German historical school that taught that the book of Acts was a product of the mid-2nd century AD, not the first century as it purports to be. So, after extensive research uh, uh, of Asia Minor and considering the writings of Luke, he observed the meticulous accuracy of the historical details and gradually, he started out as a skeptic, Gradually, uh, his attitude began to change. He was forced to conclude that Luke is a historian of the first rank, is your next blank, first rank. This author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. And your your old Bible is full of contradictions, errors. You can't trust anything that's in there. And this guy starting out as a secular guy, wanting to disprove, says, you know what? If you're honest with the facts, this guy's one of the greatest historians ever on the planet. That's honesty. Okay, Ramsey's conclusion was the book of Acts was written mid-first century. Dr. Nelson, whatever, uh, the most outstanding Jewish scholar of the century, writes about the archaeological uh, confirmation of the scripture. He says it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever, ever controverted a biblical reference. In other words, it doesn't disagree with what the Bible states. Scores of archeological findings have been made, which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail, historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They, listen, they form a tessera in the most uh, mosaic, uh, the vast mosaic of the Bible's almost incredibly uh, correct historical memory. And listen, amazingly enough, he says, the more archeologists dig, the more proof we have for the reliability of our Bible. Let me give you a couple examples of that and then we'll close for our study. Uh, the black steel, we've talked about this before. A lot of skeptics say that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible uh, because writing they say was not invented at that time. Well, they discovered something called the black steel which had these writings on it as a clay uh, form and that's what they used to write with with these uh, clay tablet things. Cuneiform writing, I believe it's called. Uh, and uh, they discovered that. And, oh, I, I guess writing was in existence back then. then. Okay, you got that one wrong again. Uh, uh, The patriarchs, skeptics say that uh, the biblical account of the patriarchs is unfounded. Until the 1970s, uh, they discovered what was called the Ibla archives. Okay, and we now know the biblical account of the patriarchs is not only accurate and true, but even the personal names and places mentioned by the patriarchs is accurate as well. Oops. Okay, now again, as I read through this stuff, folks, uh, how many guys are so glad that when these skeptics... You know, they make their bold claims. It gets on the History Channel. Uh, It gets on the front page of the news. But when they're proven wrong time and time and time, every single time, that they come out and give adequate, equal time on the History Channel. And they make sure the rebuttal comes out on the front page. of the. Yeah, right. Uh, Doors in Sodom. Uh, Skeptics say that there was no such thing as doors in Sodoms, as were mentioned when they barred themselves when the people were trying to come in and do their dirty deed thing and uh, uh, they said well they they didn't use doors back then well guess what they found out yeah they did Uh, camels they said that the account of camels in the book of Genesis is false because they didn't use them back then yes they did Uh, the Hittites one of my favorite examples they claimed that there was no such people as the Hittites that the Bible mentions multiple times well guess what they kept digging and they now found that they're real we have now found 1,200 years of records of their civilization (laughs) not two years 1,200 years Okay, how many of you guys say that's like a nanny-nanny boo-boo in Jesus' name that's going on there? Uh, Solomon's wealth, skeptics actually have said there's, the Solomon's wealth is greatly exaggeration. Uh, there's no way that the kings back in those days could ever amass that wealth. Guess what? Thanks to archaeology, we know. No, that's actually uh, the lifestyle that many uh, kings could have. Of course, King Solomon had the greatest. King Sargon, uh, skeptics say that there's no such king, Sargon, the Assyrian king that was mentioned in the book of Isaiah. But listen, we have not only now discovered Sargon's palace in Iraq, But the very event that Isaiah recorded for us in chapter 20 about Sargon's capture of Ashdod is recorded there on the palace as well. That they said didn't exist. Various battles. They say, oh, we can't find these battles. Must be make-believe. You can't trust the Bible. Well, no, you keep digging. You find the battles are recorded for us outside the scripture in other places as well. It's historically accurate. Uh, The military campaign into Israel by Pharaoh is recorded uh, on the temple walls in Thebes and Egypt. The revolt of Moab against Israel is recorded on the Misha inscription. The fall of Samaria to Sargon II is recorded on his palace walls. The campaign of the Syrian king Sennacherib against Judah is recorded on the Taylor Prism. The siege of Lachish, also by Sennacherib, is recorded on the Lachish Reliefs. The assassination of Sennacherib by his own son is recorded in the annals of his son, Aserodon. Uh, The fall of Nineveh is recorded on the tablet of Nabopolassar. The fall of Jerusalem uh, to Nebuchadnezzar king King of Babylon is recorded in the Babylonian Chronicles. The captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is recorded on the Babylonian ration records. They found it there. The fall of Babylon to the Medes and the Persian is recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder. The freeing of the captives in Babylon by Cyrus the Great is also recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder. Secular sources. Uh, admit it too. Belshazzar, they said there's no such guy as Belshazzar as mentioned in the book of Daniel. They not only know that he now exists, but he was in fact Nabonidus' son who served as a co-regent of Babylon. Therefore, listen, when he offered Daniel the third highest ruler position in the kingdom for reading the handwriting on the wall, it not only would have been legitimate, it was in fact, we know historically, the next available position. Exactly what he said. Various figures, people want to doubt, not just Belshazzar, but all, all kinds of them. Yet, listen, over 50 persons named in the Old Testament and 27 persons mentioned in the New Testament, including some of their likenesses, are known and found in other records outside the Bible. Okay? The Exodus. People say that there is no such thing as Exodus, but once again, I know you guys have memorized that study. We did. Did the Bible really come from God? Uh, But how many guys enjoyed that video where they had scuba divers going into the Red Sea and you saw the actual chariot wheels at the bottom? But no, there's no such thing as an exodus. We have no proof. Yeah, whatever. Luke census, they say that in the New Testament, that's the Old Testament. uh, Luke census, uh, there's no basis for this. The Romans, we have no records of this. They now know, yes, of course, that was common practice. Pontius Pilate, they said he doesn't even exist. 1961. Italian archaeologists were excavating an ancient Roman amphitheater near Caesarea They uncovered an interesting limestone block on the face of it is an inscription to the dedication to Tiberius Caesar And it says it's from guess who Pontius Pilate prefect of Judea Oops guess you got that one wrong Uh, pool of Bethesda They said that uh, this mentioning there's no uh, basis for it. we can't find it. They kept digging guess what they found? pool of Bethesda, seat of Moses that's mentioned in the New Testament, particular seat being taught in the Jewish synagogue. They say, we don't see these. They found them. Uh, and this one, i close with this, G- Caiaphas. This is amazing. He was not only the high priest for 18 years, but it's the same Caiaphas uh, that Jesus was taken to after he was arrested and asked Jesus, this guy is the one who asked Jesus, are you the Christ or Messiah, the son of the blessed one? To which Jesus has his infamous answer, I am, which is a deity thing, right? Okay, then he handed Jesus over to Pilate to be tried. Well, he's not only real, okay, but his family tomb was recently discovered by accident by construction workers who were making a road just south of the old city of Jerusalem, okay? Archaeologists were called to the scene and they found ossuaries. These are those limestone bone boxes they put their remains in with the remains of Caius' family, including himself. Okay, the most beautifully decorated ossuary was inscribed with his name and sure enough inside were the remains of a 60-year-old man, almost certainly to be the bones of Caiaphas that was mentioned in the New Testament, and as one man states, this remarkable discovery has for the first time provided us with the actual physical remains of an actual character mentioned in the Bible. And yet people continue want to parrot, "Oh no, you can't trust the Bible." I'll I'll listen to Aristotle before I listen. I'll close with this. Norman Geisler, he says, we find that there is good evidence that from archeology span that the scriptures speak the truth. In many instances, the scriptures even reflect firsthand knowledge of the times and customs it describes. While many have doubted the accuracy of the Bible, time and continued research have consistently demonstrated that the word of God is better informed than its critics. In fact, while thousands of find in the ancient world support in broad outline and often in detail the biblical picture, listen, he too says it, not one incontrovertible find has ever contradicted the bible why because it came from god and he doesn't lie and you could trust the transmission and the reality of the scripture that we have today god overshadowed; he made sure of it it's been meticulously done just for you and i so that we can keep it on the shelf so it can collect dust and so we will never be able to give a defense for the hope that lies within us yeah yes that last part was wrong no so that we would open it up blow the dust off and get well equipped to share with the people who still need to know Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin, or our unholiness, is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, What even we're going to do? He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law. To show us what he already knows, the Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one says this: "You shall not bear false witness." Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the the another commandment says, "You shall not steal." Okay, uh, and you might think, "Well, that's something that everybody does." Well, it doesn't make it right.